Thank you, Elise and the praise team. So if we're honest, and so uh, I purposely moved our, our testimony interview, actually, until uh, after that song. And uh, Will uh, shared a little bit with me of his testimony, and so Will, come on up here. And, and uh, he told me he was a little nervous, so I said, well, we'll do this as an interview, so I can ask him a few questions and, and, uh, and to make you feel better, just so you're not nervous when you start. See, we have this affinity. Both of our teams share last place in the NFC East. <clears throat> but, but after today, only one of our teams will share it all by themselves. And I'm just hoping for early and often turnovers. <laughs> now, um, so he would, Will had shared with me a little bit of his testimony that, um, you know, growing up there was a time where you didn't really like white people a whole lot. And yet, and yet we're good friends. So tell us a little bit about that and why that was the case, Will, a little bit. You gotta hold the mic up. Two, two moments in my life. I think uh, the first one was when I first came to the United States in 84. I was 12 in, and I was in eighth grade. So I was excited to attend an American school. And, you know, the, the, the <laughs> dream of a Dominican is to come to, to the United States to, to make a better life. So when I went to the lunchroom, I, you know, I didn't know any English at all. So I wanted to sit with Americans. So in my mind, Americans were white people. So I went and sat down with the Americans and they were going like this, like, you know, I didn't understand what they were saying. They were like, so a Spanish guy saw it and he grabbed me and he was like, they don't want you to sit with them. And I was like, why? Like, cause they don't like you, you you're Hispanic. So, you know, that was, uh, that one time, and the second time, I was uh, 11th grade. Uh, we just moved to Gaithersburg, and me and my friend Dante, who was African-American, uh, we were walking around, and we saw this white lady crying. She was crying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we wanted to know what was going on, so we went up to her and asked her. She was okay, and she turned around, and she was like, get away from me, you N-word. Mm. And we were like, oh, man. So we just let, left her alone, so mm. those two times. Oh. So where did these negative thoughts or this couple of these bad experiences maybe start to taint you and, and kind of propelled you in a negative direction towards yeah. white people? Where did, where, did that kinda, where did that lead you, Will? I, I wanted to know more about why those things were. So I started looking into American history. And, you know, as I looked at American history, you know, the, the foundation of the nation and slavery and the civil rights movement, I... I just became disillusioned and, and, and I didn't like white people too much. So I started going and reading a lot of books on black nationalism, like you know Elijah Muhammad, Louis Farrakhan, and all of those guys who don't like white people at all, so. Yeah. Wow, so uh, what, what brought you out of that? In the gospel or some individuals? What, what um, changed you to? I was at Montgomery College in 1992. And I saw this, this, this white guy. He had, you know, back in 92, all, all, all of the urban kids had baggy pants, triple X shirts, everything was big. But this one older guy, he looked just like Tom Selleck. All right? He had the mustache, he had a, like a mullet, some, some type of mullet. He, <laughs> he had some tight Wrangler jeans on and a members only jacket. He I mean, must he, have he been was, white. Yeah. <laughs> He looked like he just came out straight out of the 80s and the 90s. And, and I saw him talking to a lot of students, right? And 
And I noticed he was handing out um, New Testaments. So I was curious, so I went up to him. You know, I grew up in the church, so I went up to him. And I started listening to him, and I started talking to him. And he was, he looked very genuine that he cared about everyone. So I was like, hmm. So we started talking, and, I, and, and, and he, you know, and, and then I ran into him two years later at Howard University Homecoming. And he was talking to, um, he was sharing the gospel with, the, with all the African Americans there. And I saw that he really cared. And then later, I, I, I found out, after I got saved, three years later, I found out that he was working for Navigators and that he was training African Americans to be able to witness to their own people as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, 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 it took that one person to start to change my direction on how I felt towards uh, white people, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would you say to, to someone, somebody out there that's been hurt? Uh, maybe somebody said something racist or you have felt... Uh, oppressed or, or you know, injustice, and there's been a, a bitterness, what advice would you give to them? What, what advice would you give them? To forgive, you know, I mean, it takes, it takes a lot of work to forgive someone that has hurt you. So to forgive as Christ has forgiven you and to, you know, to get to know people from other ethnicities as well, you know. So that... I mean, it took me it took me a while, but you know I'm here, and you know I shitty grow. <laughs> so <laughs> we're glad you're here. Love you, man. Thank you, Will. All right, we'll we'll use that as a lead into Galatians chapter two. Let me pray for us, and we'll consider the Word of God this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for the word of God. We thank you it doesn't return void. It judges the thoughts and the hearts and attitudes of our heart, dividing even soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And we ask that it would penetrate deep into our hearts, this living word that's living and active. Do your work in us. Revive our hearts. Restore our joy. Give light to our eyes. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, or that's Peter, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul, because he stood condemned. For for before certain men uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here we are in Galatians chapter two, and we have this very awkward, tense moment. Two apostles squaring off in opposition, one apostle rebuking another apostle in front of everybody at the church picnic. Imagine yesterday under the pavilion that Tom Parker rebukes Bruce Wiley right in front of everybody or rebukes me. 
that would be like, whoa, this is really heavy. This is, you know, this would be drama, wouldn't it? Well, something like that happened here in Antioch. You have a face-to-face opposition, verse 11. Verse 12, we're told what led to the problem and the confrontation, the result of the problem, verse 13, and verse 14, the underlying problem behind it all. So let's walk through the text, and then we'll apply it to our situation and culture. So first of all, the face-to-face opposition is verse 11. We are told that Paul opposed Peter to his face, and in verse 14, we see that Paul's rebuke was before them all. This was a public rebuke because it was a public sin. The poor Gentile Christians are now being shunned, segregation had begun, and all the Jews are in retreat from fellowship. And now you've got two camps of believers in the same church in Antioch. You've got the Gentile Christians over here and the Jewish Christians over here, and now the church is getting ripe for a church split as the one communion table and the one life is no longer one but is now being divided into two. And the problem must be addressed publicly or the church is, co- is going to come apart along a racial divide. That's, what we're, that's what's happening here. So what led to the problem, we are told in verse 12, is that certain men from James, the brother of Jesus, these lieutenants were not like their general. Oh, no, because James had nothing to do with this. James was all for the gospel, and he stood behind the gospel in Acts 15. But the lieutenants behind the general often take a message with greater zeal and often put a little twist and slant on things, and they're so zealous that they insisted that one must be circumcised to be saved. They insisted on keeping the ceremonial laws that Christ fulfilled. They insisted on strict observance of Sabbath days, feast days, dietary laws, and of course, circumcision. And so, yes, they believed in Christ, but yes, you also must keep these laws to be in good standing with God. Acts 15 lays out their bad theology. Acts 15, 1. Some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is bad theology, okay? The whole book of Galatians is tackling this issue. It's Paul's first letter, and he's angry. And the book begins with, Paul, an apostle, not. That's how it begins. Not by men, nor through man, but by God and through Jesus Christ. I mean, he is, he's on the... He is righteously angry because a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. You don't add to the gospel, you ruin it if you do that. You don't go to a museum with your $5 paint set, pull out your brushes and decide you you think you're going to improve on a few of the Renoirs and the the Monets and the Picassos and you're going to make them better. If you touch those masterpieces to supposedly improve upon them, you actually destroy them. The same is true with the gospel. Jesus must be everything for you this morning or he's nothing to you. He must be everything or he isn't anything. If Jesus' life, death, and resurrection isn't enough to beautify you and make you whole and acceptable before God, what you will always be adding. You're always going to be performing. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be trying, trying harder improving, and the gospel becomes more and more spelled D-O, rather than the true gospel, which is spelled D-O-N-E. And there's a big difference between those two letters, between do and done. 
You see, we just sang about that. You know, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. I mean, that's the simple gospel. Are you resting in the finished work of Christ to atone for your sins? You see, you really need the gospel when you screw up. This all sounds great in theory till you really discover you're a sinner. That's when you really need the gospel and that's when you're gonna work toward, go naturally towards works righteousness. I gotta do something, I gotta atone for this. I gotta improve myself. I'll come to Jesus when I can first reform my own life. No. Christ wasn't enough for these certain men of James and now in their zeal, they're taking a literal or a picture of a chainsaw that's gonna cut this picnic table right in half and saw the church in two and put the Gentiles on one side and the Jews on the other. Works righteousness is a mess in the church. And so we are told here that in verse 12, Peter is happily eating with the Gentiles. And the issue, the tense of the verb in the Greek is imperfect, which means this was an ongoing habit. Peter has discovered hot dogs and sausage and ham, he pork chops and even pork barbecue. He is having the good stuff with, with the Gentiles. This was ongoing, it was delicious, his conscience was free, he'd had the vision, rise Peter, kill and eat, and he'd said, no, 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 but three, the Lord said, don't call what's clean, call it, call it common, don't do that, right? So he had had this vision from heaven in Acts 10, and now Peter is enjoying fellowship and food with Gentiles until the men from James came. And now they become Lord of his conscience. That's Westminster Confession language for violation of the first commandment. He has another God before him now. It's the men from James. And they become the Lord of his conscience. He begins to lack courage in his conviction. He fears the circumcision party. He fears man. And as a man pleaser, he's afraid they're going to persecute him or spread, spread bad stories about him back in Jerusalem that might hinder his influence and his good reputation. And so they give pause, they cause him to give pause, draw back, and to separate himself. And then he goes into full retreat and leaves behind his newfound Gentile friends. Reminds me of a story that I heard recently. Some of you may have heard this if you heard... Tony Evans in his sermon on John 4, but he talked about the Lone Ranger and Tonto. And he says, the Lone Ranger and Tonto are going across the plains and there's a group of Indians on the Northern Ridge. And, and this group of Indians getting ready to attack the Lone Ranger. So T Tonto says, Kimasabi, what do we do now? And the Lone Ranger said, well, we gotta go east. And so, you know, there's a group of Indians as they're heading east, there's a group of Indians on the Eastern Ridge. And so they're getting ready to attack them again. And again, uh, Tonto says, Kimasabi, what do we do now? And he says, well, we got to go west. And, and so they go west. But as they're going west, sure enough, there's Indians on the western ridge. And, and once again, Tonto says, Kimasabi, what do we do now? And, and, and Tonto says, uh, or the Lone Ranger says, well, there's only one place we got we to go. We got to go south. When they go south, there's a group of red Indians on the southern ridge. And now they're, they're being closed in on all four directions and the Lone Ranger now asks a question. He says, Tonto, these your people? What do we do now? Tonto says, who's we, pale face? <laughs> we laugh. But the men from James had Peter hemmed in. And now he's denying the very people that were close to him because he's afraid of man. You ever been there? It's easy to do. 
The result of the problem, though, is massive. I mean, here's Peter, the leader of the church, an apostle, and his actions aren't done in a vacuum, and ours aren't either. They have consequences as they influence the whole. As Peter's now being motivated by fear, which proves to be a snare, the rest of the Jews, and even Barnabas, who many think was on staff at the church at Antioch, I mean, here you got a staff member, and he's retreating. And twice in verse 13, we get the hypocrite word that the rest of the Jews and even Barnabas are led astray because of their hypocrisy. Their beliefs and their actions were not in accord. And now the church is, the split is complete. It says the rest of the Jews and Barnabas are over here, all because of this little loud minority. There's always this loud minority making a lot of noise. And we have two groups divided in half by race. Separate but equal, but some are more equal than others, as George Orwell once said, because the group that was really the more equals had all the real, you know, everybody but Paul was, Paul was left with the Gentiles, but now over here you've got Barnabas and, and Peter and all the, you know, men from James. They're all lined up over on the Gentile side and the, Gent, or the Jew side and the Gentiles are like, what, what happened? And so verse 14 to 16, we see the rebuke of Paul to Peter before them all. And we see what was underneath the problem all along. Paul rebukes Peter because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. They were not right walking. The word orthopedeo, ortho for right, pedeo, podiatrist, feet. They were not right walking with the truth of the gospel. The gospel was believed and it was being proclaimed. Christ is enough. Christ alone justifies. He alone makes you righteous. Christ is all you need. Christ died for your sins, rose for your justification. Works can't save you. Works can never justify you. Grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. I mean, that was their creed. That was their proclamation. But their conduct and their pullback in participation was a whole other story. They had orthodoxy, but not orthopraxy. They're not right walking. It hasn't worked its way down. And it's not living itself out. That's what racism is. It's not right walking with the truth of the gospel. Do we really believe that one race is more special to God, either made that way in his image or based on their performance of keeping certain laws or performing certain rituals or singing certain types of music is inherently better or holier than another. No. But yet in action, sometimes we can do that. And so this is the background of Peter's mistake that leads to this massive rift and would have been an ugly church split. I mean, you would have had Jews and Gentiles forever not breaking bread. They would have been breaking bread in different churches. Had Paul not had the courage to stand up to this nonsense and rebuked Peter because he's not right, he's not right walking with the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? Look at verse 16. Three times in verse 16, we have the word justified. Three times justified, justified, justified. How are we justified? Well, three times it says, not by works of the law. A person's not justified by works of the law. 
And it's not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, then how are we justified? Three times again, three times. Faith, faith, belief. It's very clear, and and three times, I mean, the, the emphasis of threes is right there. It's for those who have believed in Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. That's how we are saved. Are we resting in that? You see, we have to not only believe the gospel, but then it has to work its way down so that we're right walking with the truth of the gospel so there isn't male nor female, nor Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus, living out of the gospel. Well, as we begin to apply this message, the PCA Church our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, is self-labeled as a continuing church. Continued from what? Continued from the PCUS Church, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, or the Southern Presbyterian Church. And the roots of the Southern Presbyterian Church go all the way back to the Civil War in which the PCUS Church was called the Presbyterian Church in the Confederate States of America, okay? That's the continuing church to where our roots go back. Okay, they believe the gospel, but they were not right walking with the truth of the gospel. And so the Southern Presbyterian Church prior to the Civil War was customary for the Presbyterian elders to give the parishioners tokens signifying that they were eligible to participate in the Lord's Supper. Sadly, in many of the churches, the African slaves were not given the customary silver token, but they were given one made of base metal. If they were allowed to receive the sacrament, it wasn't until all the white members had been served first, and that was considered gracious. After the Civil War, Robert Louis Dadney, who is considered the, the theologian of the, of the Southern Presbyterian Church, him and James Henley Thornwell, written lots of books, got these four volumes, and he's written a lot of really good stuff. But you have to take out the meat eat the meat and throw out the bones. And I'm gonna give you a few of the bones that I wished I had been taught because these are horrible. This is not right walking with the truth of the gospel. Dabney considered black people to be a morally inferior race, a sordid alien taint marked by lying, theft, drunkenness, laziness, and waste. He considered slavery to be the righteous, the best, yea, the only tolerable relation between blacks and whites, and he argued that it was better for blacks to be enslaved than not, since it was better for their minds and their health. Dabney called the attempt to educate all Negroes mischievous, tyrannical, useless, impractical, and dishonest. This is the leading theologian of the Southern Presbyterian Church. He said, it is well known that as a general rule, Negroes are a graceless, vagabondish set and contribute very little to the support of the state by which they are protected. They are not citizens, never can become citizens, and whenever found in large numbers, they are an expense and a source of trouble. I mean, that's, that's straight from the pit of hell. And this, is the, this was the continuing church from which we've come. There was a, there's a cultural race problem in America, and the problem goes way back, and the church was part of it. In 1867, two years after the Civil War, 535 African Americans were lynched. In 1890, the Confederate states had written these new constitutions. They put in place the same two-tiered system. They established these Jim Crow laws. 
And in Louisiana, for example, in 1897, there was 137,000 registered black voters. In three years, in 1900, Louisiana had 5,000 black voters. What happened? In the 1950s, there were separate drinking fountains with a sign that said white and a, color that, and a sign that said colored above them, indicating if you were African-American that you were a leper and we can't drink out of the same fountain. There were separate public restrooms, separate public schools, separate public swimming pools, separate bus seating, separate housing, separate restaurants, separate hospital waiting rooms, separate, separate dentist waiting rooms, separate bus station waiting rooms, and last but not least, separate churches. Yet it was all rationalized as separate but equal. And as George Orwell would say, some were more equal than others. And one of the early pioneers who stood up for blacks was Billy Graham. Billy Graham determined in 1952 that he could no longer preach the gospel in segregated crusade meetings because that would represent a betrayal of the gospel itself. And in 1953, the Billy Graham rally in Birmingham, Alabama wasn't white night and then colored night. It was an integrated crusade. Way to go, Billy. And many were in favor, and many were not. And many in the Southern culture weren't ready to embrace this. And Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter from a Birmingham jail, was put in solitary confinement. And then he wrote this letter because people were, were saying, why are you in Atlanta coming to the rescue, these people in Birmingham? What does this have to do with you? Why don't you just stay where you belong? This is what he says. If you've never read this, and I, I, I feel bad I've never read this till this summer. I'd never read a letter from a Birmingham jail. Everybody should read this. For years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long de delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace towards gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it was easy for those who've never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your, your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whims, when you have seen the hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you've seen the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an influent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why you cannot go to the public amusement park that's just been advertised on television, and you see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Fun Town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky, and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your autumn 
automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out, nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged in the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. I cannot sit by in Atlanta and not be concerned with what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. That's a quote worth remembering and living for. There are still issues of racism today. Is it, it's in the news almost every week. Do we care or are we indifferent? This week, CNN had an article entitled, Trying to Appear Not Too Black on Airbnb is Exhausting. And the lady writes, I also know what it's like to spend too much of the day work trying to get an Airbnb host to accept you, crafting just the right summary of why you're visiting the area, dropping subtle or not so subtle references to graduating from an Ivy League college, being a professor, a lawyer, living in a suburban neighborhood, having small children who attend Montessori school, trying not to appear, trying to appear not too black to rent to. And so when I read this article, I thought, well, this will be really interesting to read the comments on this. And the comments were heartbreaking. Here's a few of the comments. Very first comment. Um, Well, cry me a river. If I don't want to rent my property to a bunch of blacks, I'll always find a way to do it. Next comment. It's my right to rent my own house to whoever I want for whatever reason I want. I own the house, not Airbnb. Next comment. Well, when you look at before and after pictures of of places blacks have stayed, why do you even wonder? It's because people don't want their place destroyed. Next comment. Making noise at the movies, robbing convenience stores, not pulling your pants up, naming your child Shaquanda. Next comment. Ridiculous article, just another person trying to jump on the race train, just thinly failed failed racism against everyone who isn't black. What about people with Muslim-sounding names? How about Latino names? I would venture a guess that they both face the same issues. I'm half Guatemalan. I see these people are concerned, are only concerned about their own lives and their issues, which are similar to the ones we face, but they, they couldn't care less about anyone who isn't black, and I'm sick of it, and I will not support their movements. And then if Caitlyn Jenner can identify with a woman, I see no problems with blacks identifying as whites. Just put that you're Caucasian on the form and you're good to go. Crazy. I hope that this isn't true for us. And I hope that we don't discriminate when it comes to who we rent to, who we sell to, who we purchase from. And I think there might be a a thought in our minds to say, "Why, why are we talking about this? How many sermons are you going to preach on this, Pastor Bale? You know, where's Pastor Bale going? He's going off on, you know, on sabbatical. He comes back, and that's all he, all he wants to talk about. Well, in 2014, just two years ago, Lig Duncan 
was on a panel before the PCA. He's the president of RTS Seminary. He grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, same place I was for nine years. And he pastored the First Pres Church in Jackson, Mississippi, a very divided city. And he says, there is so much, there's much to be ashamed of and much to be forgiven for. When people say to me, isn't it time to move on? I say to my African brothers and sisters, you tell me when it's time to move on. The year before last at the General Assembly, Lig Duncan and Shawn Michael Lewis, they stood up. They had their right walking with the truth of the gospel moment. And they put a personal resolution before the General Assembly. And they called on the assembly in a personal resolution, be it therefore resolved that the 43rd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize and confess our church's covenantal and generation involvement in and complicity with racial injustice inside and outside of our churches during the civil rights period. And be it further resolved that the General Assembly recommit ourselves to the task of truth and reconciliation with our African-American brothers and sisters for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. And be it finally resolved that the General Assembly urges the congregations of the Presbyterian churches, Church in America to confess their own particular sins and failures as may be appropriate and seek to further truth and reconciliation for the gospel's sake within their own local communities." Well, the resolution was not passed at that. It was saying, we need a year to think about this. And for the church to get serious and the presbyteries to come back with a, with a re, uh, resolution to pass at this last year's General Assembly, which they did. And three quarters of the overtures in last year's General Assembly were about racial relations, race relations. And the one that passed was the overture from the Presbytery, Potomac Presbytery, which is our Presbytery. And what the men have recognized as leaders of the church, it's kind of like if I'm the pastor of this church, and before I was the pastor, the previous pastor didn't do interracial marriages or didn't, wouldn't do a, a black funeral or wouldn't uh, have black people come to church. I, as the new pastor, even though I hadn't committed those sins, I represent the whole. And I would go to those people and say, we are so sorry that we as a church did that. Please forgive us, even though I myself may not have been there. And so the corporate confession and repentance we see throughout the Bible. Ezra prays as a we rather than an I or a me, confessing our guilt, even though he didn't marry outside of the covenant a, uh, he didn't have a forbidden foreign woman marriage, but he confesses we and our. The Levites lead the Israelites in grief over our sins in Nehemiah 9, even though they didn't personally commit them. And Daniel ponders the transgressions of no smaller group than all Israel and famously confesses we have sinned, we have been wicked, we have turned away, we have not lis listened and these were sins done 70 years earlier that caused their deportation to Babylon. And so in the spirit of these corporate confession, this is what was approved by this year's General Assembly. I want you to hear this. I think this was the most important resolution or, or overture I think that the denomination has ever passed. So listen carefully. 
Whereas the 43rd General Assembly considered a personal resolution on racial reconciliation, referred the matter to the 44th General Assembly so that lower courts could perfect and propose a resolution encouraging heartfelt repentance. And whereas in the 1973 message to all the churches, the founding generation of the Presbyterian Church in America expressly declared our denomination to be the continuing church of the Presbyterian Church in the United States, PCUS, saying we have called ourselves continuing Presbyterians because we seek to continue the faith of our founding fathers of that church. And whereas the formation and identity of the PCA was shaped through the honorable and courageous commitment of our founding denominational leaders and churches to be faithful to the scriptures and doctrine and practice, and these convictions remain with us to this day. And whereas during the civil rights period there were founding denominational leaders and churches who not, who not only failed to pursue racial reconciliation, but also actively worked against it in both church and society through sinful practices, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a neighbor. And whereas the vestiges of these sins continue to affect our denomination to this day and significantly hinder efforts for reconciliation with our African-American and other minority brothers and sisters by often refusing to lay down our cultural preferences so these brothers and sisters might feel more welcome in our churches, not sufficiently encouraging minority culture brothers into leadership within our General Assembly committees and agencies, presbyteries and churches as evidenced by our history, failure, Failing to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry, failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression, and whereas the 30th General Assembly adopted a resolution on racial reconciliation that confessed heinous sins connected with unbiblical forms of servitude, but did not deal specifically with the racial sins committed during the much more recent civil rights period, which betrayed the visible betrayed the visible unity of all believers in Christ, the command to love our neighbors as ourselves in the image of God and all people. And whereas God has once more given the PCA a gracious opportunity to show the beauty, grace, and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through confession and through the fruits of repentance, such as formative and corrective discipline for racial sins, in understanding and appreciation of minority cultures, intentionally establishing interracial friendships and partnerships inside and outside our denomination, renewing our church's commitment to develop minority leadership at the congregational, presbytery, and denominational levels, and encouraging a denominational-wide vision for and commitment to a more racially and ethnically diverse church in obedience to the Great Commission. And therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of these past and continuing racial sins and failure to love our brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, and further be it resolved, be it further resolved that the General Assembly praises and recommits itself to the gospel task of racial reconciliation, diligently seeking effective courses of actions to further that goal with humility, sincerity, and zeal for the glory of God and the furtherance of, of gospel. And be it finally resolved that the General Assembly urges the congregations, that's us, 
and the presbyteries of the Presbyterian Church in America to make this resolution known to their members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Spirit and strive towards racial reconciliation for the advancement of the gospel, the love of Christ, and the glory of God. So this is a big deal in our denomination. This was overwhelmingly passed. There were some nays, unfortunately. But this was a good move on the part of the church. And so we are going to, the group that we're leading at my house for a small group, we are going to be looking at this book, Helos Emmanuel, and we're going to be having conversations about what more we could be doing as a church. Um, And I would just ask you to be praying along those lines for our church. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession now. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And Lord, we have not initiated peace or pursued peace with all men like we should, because we have failed to see the ongoing hostility and problem of race in America. We have been indifferent and unconcerned to the cries of our black brothers and sisters in Christ for generations. Lord, you have said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And Lord, we confess that we've been quick to speak, quick to become angry and defensive, and slow to listen to our brothers and sisters whom we have not considered better than ourselves. We've labeled Martin Luther King Jr. as a liberal and a communist, and we wouldn't listen to his message. We have bristled at anything that might cause us to really humble ourselves and hear and see stories of oppression that we have too quickly dismissed as more white guilt. Lord, you've said, let justice roll down like waters, and yet we have seen clear injustice towards African Americans whom we have not stood in solidarity with them and publicly called sin, sin. We have been indifferent and insensitive, and we ask that you'd forgive us. Lord, you've called your church to be one, And you prayed for our unity. And so we ask that you would forgive us for our indifference, our lack of prayer, and our lack of efforts to see the black church and the white church united. We ask that you would open wide our hearts, never to be closed in love again. We ask for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All God's people say Amen.